G'day and welcome back to the Eloquent in the Room podcast and the second half of my conversation with Phoebe Doran, which is part of the series, The Madonna Whore Diaries. We continue our conversation talking about pregnancy, motherhood, breastfeeding and how it affected our sexuality, our view of ourselves as sexual beings and any impact it had on our sex lives. In fact, we are going to pick up exactly where we left off regarding my relationship with my breasts when I had my third child in 1998, having had my second child in 1990. It was a very different experience because of the different relationship that I had with both babies' fathers influenced me heavily in the way I saw myself as a nursing mother. And I feel like these are the stories that people don't talk about. I also mentioned a book that was published in 2003 by academic and feminist Fiona Giles. And the book is called Fresh Milk, The Secret Life of Breasts. And besides her research into the social mores and practices of breastfeeding and how they've changed over the decades, probably centuries... She also collected a vast array of women's experiences and included in the book. Some people had great experiences with breastfeeding, some people not so much. She covers the absolute gamut, includes breast milk recipes, includes people's sexual fantasies about breastfeeding and people's sexual experiences regarding breastfeeding. Fast forward 20 years from when that book came out and lactation porn is alive and well on the internet, but women are still being told to cover up, still being told that they're disgusting for breastfeeding. It's just hideous. And I remember thinking that at the time, but society does a number on us and we comply, we capitulate to the modesty around breastfeeding Anyway, I contributed to the book, uh, the way I was alerted to that possibility of contributing an anecdote of my own to the book was courtesy of an article that she wrote, which was published in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2001. And in that article, which I'm about to read some of it to you, she really peels away the layers of pretense and out-and-out misogyny surrounding breastfeeding women who, when they start breastfeeding, become a different kind of woman than they were before they started breastfeeding, (laughs) it would seem. Without further ado, I want to read that article because it's still relevant today. It was written 20 years ago. And it says everything better than I ever could. Okay, excuse me while I slip into my narrator voice. Naomi Campbell lies naked on the floor with her legs in the fridge. She stares vacantly at the camera while pouring a carton of milk over her breasts, creamy rivulets coursing down her arms, belly and neck. Ice cubes are scattered around her on the tiled floor as though the freezer has exploded, spilling out this exotic gazelle with her milk and trays of ice. When I say her milk... This is meant advisedly as the side of Naomi's milk carton clearly spells out breast milk. One side of a carton shown lying in the foreground 
is an iconic cow's face in stark red ink. The other side, which is displayed by Naomi as she empties its contents from on high, shows a photo of herself with the caption, Have you seen me? And her name emblazoned in capitals below. Part of a series for Playboy by the photographer David LaChapelle, this image is one of the few circulating in contemporary culture that airlifts the subject of lactation out of its reverential Madonna and child confines. Rarely depicted in any context outside advertising in parenting magazines or educational literature for expectant mothers, the pose when it does show up is nearly always the same. Mother gazes on her child as it suckles peacefully at her semi-concealed soft focus bosom. A golden light shines beatifically on the young mother's glowing orb, its sole purpose to nurture her innocently engrossed baby. Floral prints or white muslin complete the demure atmosphere. Second only to the human face, the female breast has always been the most public body part. Its forward thrust an inevitable index of the ways in which women's roles have been viewed over time. Britannia's breastplates are echoed in Xena warriors' outfits and recall the Amazonian breast that was removed for fighting. The dawn of the Industrial Revolution saw French socialites bare their breasts beneath transparent gauze as though prematurely nostalgic for a pastoral dream in which there were no workers, only maidens frolicking naked in the forest. The hyper-maternal baby-booming 1950s introduced the lifting and separating torpedo bra, its rocket-shaped moulding the perfect accompaniment to the Cold War. In the 1980s, Jean-Paul Gaultier's parody of this conical creation for Madonna not only sexualised this forbidding image, but reiterated its references to armour for a power-dressing era. Bra-burning feminists may have briefly softened the bosom's profile in the 1970s, but the 90s adoration of the gravity-defying Lara Croft and the pneumatic Pamela Anderson remains ascendant. Despite the variety of fashions in shape and size, the fully functioning lactating breast rarely appears, and as an image associated with female sexuality, it's virtually without trace. The dominant shape of the thrusting, large, brassiered breast is a phallic one, a perpetually erect monument to the credo that size matters for women too. But this is a dysfunctional phallus, an erection that never releases the promised life-giving fluid within. It was not always thus. In addition to the many Renaissance paintings of Maria Lactans, an uber-category of the Madonna and Charles genre, there were a few more playful portrayals, such as Peter Paul Rubens' Venus, Mars and Cupid, in which the engorged Venus smiles wickedly at Cupid's upturned face as she sprays an arc of milk into his open mouth. In the 15th century Flemish painting The Lactation of Saint Bernard, the Virgin bypasses baby Jesus to squirt milk into the saint's mouth. A rare 20th century departure is Frida Kahlo's painting, My Nurse and I, which shows a wet nurse feeding a miniature Kahlo and illustrates the interior of the woman's breast with its forest of milk ducts. But the modest Madonna and child image dominates and most people continue to associate breastfeeding with the Immaculate Conception 
as though all new mothers swapped their sex appeal for a halo. Breastfeeding is associated with a veritably monastic existence, a time for meditative and private moments of prayerful exchange. And that's where we're going to leave the article. It is a long one. It quotes a lot of statistics that are relevant to the time. Some of those things are still relevant now, but I just did want to leave it there because that bit was really evocative. And I remember reading it at the time and feeling particularly invigorated. My youngest son, I think I'd actually weaned him by that stage. He would have been three when that article came out. And it was published to lure people to participate in her survey. She wanted anecdotal stories from people from all walks of life and with all experience of breastfeeding and I sent her mine. So there's a big chunky paragraph in there that I contributed quite proudly. So that does leave us pretty much where we left off talking about breastfeeding and such. This is the Madonna Whore Diaries, baby, if you're the least bit squeamish about lactating boobs or boobs generally and sex. This is not the episode for you. Everyone else, enjoy the second half of my chat with Phoebe and stick around. I will have another chat with you at the end. Became my go-to, though. This is the thing. It's like you can't skip it. It's like you can't you can't go from kissing to having sex. You can't skip it. The breasts have to be part of the thing because as far as I was concerned, it made for greater arousal before anything else. And if you're already tremendously aroused before you do anything that's supposed to arouse you more, then it's more arousal. Look at me with my... Totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm building a house, an arousal. Yes, house. totally. Yeah. So, yeah, I became really focused on it. This was before I felt pregnant. Right. And then I felt pregnant. And I wasn't really aware of how that was going to be with us. And I told him that um, having had babies before, I knew that I would be more uh, protective of my breasts and less inclined to want him to touch them because of the milk situation. But after the first, you know, six months, your breast milk supply is... It just chills out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, So to allow him to suck on my breasts when we were having sex, knowing full well that I would let down milk. So it became an interesting mind fuck to go through it because obviously that's the ultimate taboo or it's supposed to be a taboo. But in reality, you have to say that you are a human being that has breasts, that has sensitive nipples, but it was not something that you connected necessarily to breastfeeding the baby. You just knew that your breasts also did something else. (laughs) when they weren't feeding a baby. Um, So this is where I come to this. This book is called Fresh Milk. She put out an amazing article talking about the life of breasts and how society covets the image of large, firm breasts that resemble large, full, milk-engorged breasts. Sure, yeah. Makes sense. The look of life, it, our human race alive. <laughs> but there's this distaste, this, this societal distaste for the idea that women produce milk in the first place and that, uh, that this goes on. So the idea that a partner, and women say this as well, 
that the the breasts are on loan to the child. Right, yeah, people say that all the time. And the breasts are rightfully going to go back to the husband and I'm like, actually, they go back to the wife or the, the partner for their enjoyment. I'm really, I'm really like, I'm on the verge of talking about breasts just all the time soon Um, (laughs) because I'm sort of building up to it because not only just to normalize certain things, but there's not many people talking about things like inverted nipples and, and how you, how your boobs age and all this sort of stuff, all of these things that I'm going through now. And I don't see anybody talking about innies rather than outies and and all that. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting um, scenario when I was single in my early 50s and I always felt very confident about my body in my late teens and mid 30s even after two children I still had outies then in my 50s with lack of anyone sucking on them on the regular and the fact that I'm getting older and my skin's changing and all that sort of stuff my nipples are completely and utterly inverted all of the time which is a bummer because I've got nothing to grab onto if I wanted to self-pleasure I've got nothing to grab onto so you can't like get them out they're bye-bye they're inside out now um so (laughs) I know but I don't I don't think it happens to everybody but it's that's what happened to me but I had inverted nipples before I fell pregnant I only had nipples after my first son was born and I, I actually have nipple envy I see women who have protruding nipples that are quite prominent and I'm like oh shucks I wish I had those (laughs) because it was only for a short period of time I had to then sort of I didn't have to but I felt obligated because women are always apologizing for their bodies or preparing people for their bodies uh, preparing people for the fact that I had inverted nipples but they are like braille so my areola is still sensitive okay so it's not a complete loss. So I find that when I'm self <laughs> when I'm self stimulating, I use my fingernails to graze my areola, and it's quite delightful. It's quite nice. nice. Mm. That's good. Yeah, not telling people that there's something about my body that they'll necessarily find a turn off, but telling people that I have interesting nipple situation going on. Yeah, so, not apologizing for it. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's only because. There's some time in my life particularly, but I think it's common of a lot of women over a certain age that just stop apologizing for anything. You just go... Which we should do a lot earlier. Yeah, that's that's the only reason why I talk about anything private at all is because I want to say, well, I've got these really freaky nipples that might freak other people out, (laughs) but they're normal and there's nothing wrong with it I've fed three babies and they're very sensitive and sexually responsive and my 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 boobs are amazing I fucking love them they're great I wouldn't swap my boobs with anyone else's boobs of course the more we talk about these things in public the less stigma there will be and everything especially young women who aren't even aware of what they're there for they think that they're there to be attractive. And I and, and I and I look back yeah. at the fact that I got pregnant, had babies, experienced breastfeeding. I feel very fortunate. I know it's not 
the norm, but everything about it made my sex life better, made me more orgasmic, and I was orgasmic to begin with, but it just made me ridiculous afterwards. So having said that, how do you feel or how did you feel about your boobs during breastfeeding and stuff? Um, I've always loved my boobs and I've always had um, sensitive nipples. They've always added to my pleasure for sure. Mm. Um, with breastfeeding, yeah, I don't find dripping milk super sexy. Mm. <laughs> and I've um, I've only been with one partner while having while breastfeeding. Yeah. And he he doesn't have a fetish or anything for milk, which some guys do, and that's not his thing, and it's not my yeah. thing. So mm-hmm. it was fine. Um, you just come up with ways to deal with it. Like you said, you bring a towel, and if you want nipple stimulation, you know that's going to happen more, mm-hmm. or you just leave your bra on and or something on so that it doesn't leak all over the place until it calms down. And you figure out how to deal with it a little bit easier when it's not as crazy gushing out. Mm. I personally don't find it very sexy. Mm. I don't ever remember it being off-putting either, necessarily. Like, I wouldn't not have sex because of it. Were you surprised? Like, what was your impression before having a baby? And were you surprised about whether you did or didn't, how you felt about it? Like, I know that... um, I didn't really factor into the fact that particularly early on with first baby and stuff that most sex that we would have would would mean I would keep a bra on <laughs> just to yeah, keep No, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that your milk let down during sex. Yeah. Usually, is it always, I forget, is it always or just sometimes? I, I think it depends how how long since you fed your child as well. Yeah. Probably. Might not be as automatic. We could, we could have this conversation again in a month and I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, but I definitely didn't expect that. I, in general, I like, I like it when my body is my own. I'm not like you that really loves being pregnant. Mm. I like, I like it when my body is more in my control (laughs) and I like, I like it when my body is mine. I like it when my baby is outside of my body. Yeah more than inside my body. I like being able to have pleasure with my breasts, but I don't mind breastfeeding. Like I don't, I don't not enjoy it. There's really great aspects to breastfeeding. Mostly I wanted to hear your story because it was just very different than mine. I definitely Mm. didn't find my sexuality in my (laughs) breastfeeding and recently postpartum body. So that was well, that's cool. thing. I we, love hearing different experiences. Yeah, it's not commonly talked about, although people do mention that after you have a baby and you and you feed for the first time, you get the after pains of the uterus going back to its normal Ugh. size. That sucks. Mm, it is. Um, but uh, with, the th- with the third labour, I was more inclined to try and get the labour to progress uh more quickly because it was dragging out and stuff by doing the nipple oh yeah stimulation it wasn't common knowledge prior to that yeah yeah so i'm not sure if it's common knowledge i know that that can help but i don't know if if your average person knows that or would feel comfortable doing that yeah and that's the um that's where i first made the connection of the because nipples make the uterus contract that's that 
direct vagus nerve connection to why yeah. nipple stimulation is is arousing and sends totally yeah yeah but this book is uh, fabulous because it, it's got case studies of all sorts of feelings and situations and eventualities and also recipes with breast milk and, and all sorts of stuff just the entire gamut of uh, experience so I, I contributed oh. a chapter of what my experience was and that was it feels like being behind a pane of glass and banging on it and and I get so angry and frustrated and, and everything seeing how sexualized breasts are but not eroticized. They're more about the objectification. Right. And not enough about how pleasurable it is for a person to own them regardless of their size. It's really all about the nipple anyway, <laughs> mostly. And how this connection to the rest of your body via nipple stimulation and men experience it too yeah not all men but not, not all um, men some men but it, yeah. but the but the potential that's the thing not all women are as erotic well, women feel it all differently too yeah yeah so there's this gamut of experience that people have but we do all have nipples and they yes, potentially <laughs> they potentially can be at least as erotic as your genitalia because they're basically as concentrated in regards to nerve endings and the really? and the nervous system is connected to them both in the same signal to the brain way. The yeah, I talked to a woman who almost exclusively had breast orgasms. Ooh, that's her awesome. breasts were far more sensitive than her clit or vulva or anything. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, you got it on your to-do list. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think I can get there. Yeah. I just, you know, you have to kind of practice, like with anything else, you have to practice and create those neural pathways and you have to figure out how to do it and how to stimulate it in the way that it will give you an orgasm and how long it takes and... Mm you know, you got to figure it out. Once you do, then you kind of have a map to get there. But are you into breath work already? Like really yeah. incorporating that? Yeah. I don't think as much as you are, but mm. I do for sure. Do you contract your pelvic floor during sex to either encourage orgasm or during orgasm to sort of yeah. Yeah. So I feel that's the... So you uh, do that while you... While to I'm get having, a breast orgasm. Yeah. You also contract your pelvic floor. Yeah. Because it's like, that's the muscle. Like, even if I'm not being... Like, I haven't done it for a while, but there I can think myself to an orgasm but when I say you were telling me that yeah so when I say think myself to an orgasm I think erotic thoughts but I also move sensually mm -hmm. and breathe and clench my pelvic floor muscles but I do it like the elevator going from the bottom floor to the top floor and then I relax and then yeah. and then try it again and yeah. so it's so and each time I do it it gets me closer and closer to orgasm it's just eventually mm -hmm. yeah yeah so because I am talking about the Madonna Hall complex do you have any thoughts on it on it like have you given any thought to it um to the Madonna Hall complex yeah yeah like have you seen it expressed in your in your world yeah, there's a lot around that. 
And I'm not really sure where to start or how you combine that within your being where you're comfortable with, I don't know, some people are not comfortable with the Madonna part and they're far more comfortable with the whore part. And some women are far more uncomfortable with the whore aspect and very comfortable with the Madonna part. And then sometimes when you become a mother, you're like, oh, I can't be sexy anymore. And this is weird. And guys struggle with the Madonna whore complex, I want to say. It's kind of more about them. It's more about how people objectify women and and judge them for being a whore or look at them as being unable to or disinclined to be a whore because they're a mother. <laughs> like right. the, like the, these two things are mutually exclusive. You wonder, I don't, did you ever have a moment's doubt that you would be different because you're a mother, that you'd, that you'd have For a different, sure. different attitude about it? I definitely sex. worried about it. And I did have to address that aspect within myself, that kind of warring of the two sides. When I was becoming a mother, when I was a mother, it like still comes up sometimes, not as much, I think, since I really became more sexually whole, I'd say, or integrated, hasn't happened as much. I think it happens more, or my own experiences, it happened more when I viewed my sexuality as something that kind of belonged to somebody else. Like we're often taught as women that our sexuality belongs to men or that it exists for men or that it's for them, for their pleasure. Or for example, I was raised that you're not sexual, you're not a sexual being, you shouldn't be a sexual being, you shouldn't be have any kind of sexuality or pleasure. You shouldn't touch yourself anything until marriage, which means, you know, that your sexuality belongs to your husband, Mm. right? And it's there for him and for you together, but it's not yours. And I think that's where a lot of that, those complexes come from maybe is if it's for his pleasure and then, no. Isn't it, it's like, when you think about it, it's ridiculous that we ever became uptight about it because the way that our bodies are built is functional sexually and reproductively and the exact same parts of our body that are functional for one are the exact same parts that are functional for the other and women are given a real fucking bill of good like really sold a bill of goods around whether or not our vaginas are going to be loose after birth and and all this sort of stuff and women become ridiculed and uh you know lots of jokes about being old and having older and having had a couple of kids that you know that they're necessarily loose um which yeah it's it's horrible it's absolutely horrible that anybody even entertains this sort of thing as being you're like a used car mm-hmm. and your value as a as a sexual being and as you know someone that enjoys pleasure or is pleasurable to have sex with somehow is degraded by having a baby. Yes, do I have complications after birth? Yes, did menopause leave me with complications? All this stuff it's a whole other conversation about those things. Yeah which made me have to adapt and had to make me change my thought processes around it, but it still didn't alter the fact that I was 
orgasmic and it didn't detract from the fact that I was orgasmic or that I, it was pleasurable for people to put their penis inside me. <laughs> yeah. I, never, I never felt that I was offering them anything less than the Rolls Royce, you know, the brand new sparkling Rolls Royce, yeah. regardless of whether I was in my 50s or I was 18, you know. Yeah. Fuck you, society, and your yeah. rigid rigid understanding of how yeah. bodies work. But I think one way that I integrated those two parts, like being a mother and being a sexual being, is seeing how much embracing my sexuality for me and loving it as my own personal sexuality and finding the pleasure in my own body, taking the time to do that and being in connection with myself made me a better mother because it, it made me more relaxed. It made me more attuned to pleasure of all kinds. It made me a lot happier. Um, you know, being a sexual being is an important part of my mental and emotional health. Mm. It's a part of who I am. And so embracing that makes me a better mom. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And because you don't resent. Like I think at the end of the day, anything that you feel takes away from your being as a mother is going to make you resent the child. But if you're feeling more in touch and more appreciative and more beautiful and more this and more that and your body produced this amazing gift of a human being into the world, yeah. you can't help but be more tactile as well with the child and you know, like massage and, and, and closeness and all of these things that you know that you can give to a child to calm their child down and, and give them sensorial things and be more aware of just physical touch, just how, I don't know, you just, your, your fingers are awake, the tips of your fingers are awake, every, every part of you is aware of the comfort that it is skin to skin with an infant and skin to skin with your partner. Yeah. It's all part of this beautiful uh, continuum that our bodies are privileged to experience. Yeah. I think I was also just really, I think I am really lucky or blessed to be surrounded by people that, like, like my husband, but also my friends and people I know. I've never got the feeling that I'm less sexy because I have children. If anything, I'm more sexy. Mm. Because of who I am as a result of having kids. Yeah. So I'm really lucky in that sense because I don't know how common that is. Mm. But that's helped me as well with the Madonna whore thing is that nobody else seems to think it's a, <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah. That I'm both, that I'm mother and sexual being, like to them that goes together. Again, I think in a lot of circles or communities, you're one or the other. Mm. I find as I get older and I sit with letting go of uh, certain ego things just because I'm getting older, that I find myself having these circular conversations in my head, particularly to do with the objectification, sexual objectification of, you know, whether what makes a person sexually attractive or not sexually attractive, and particularly how women are objectified and how breasts are sexualized. And 
I find it's an interesting thing to unpack within you because we are all born from a mother. We're all born from a female. Most of us have been breastfed at some stage, for whether it was for a day or whether it was for a year or whatever. Um, but the primal urge of the infant from the moment it's born is to latch on to a breast. Yeah, yeah. Every single human being regardless of their gender or, or anything biological, every single human being has this lizard brain impulse to have a certain appreciation of the beauty of the female breast, whether it's subliminal or whether it's overt. There's a certain appreciation with the contour and the shape mm-hmm. of the female breast. Looking at statues and stuff, it's, it's the way bodies were depicted since time immemorial and, you know, art and all this sort of stuff, uh, the human body, like a lot of the time in the old Renaissance paintings, the woman's garment would be pulled below her breasts or she'd be completely naked or whatever. So everybody has this sort of monkey or lizard brain sort of fixation with that at some level. So it's almost impossible not to in certain ways, sexualize the female breast. But because we're sentient beings, we then have to have a mechanism that also desexualizes it at the same time <laughs> because men also have nipples. So we've got these interesting things, but we like pectoral muscles or there might be something about the the male form or, in my case, uh, the flat female form or whatever that you find attractive. And it's it's this aesthetic that it, that whether it, whether or not we as a society were encouraged to appreciate it or not, it's hard to know. It's a chicken and egg scenario. How much of it is a primitive thing that we already appreciate, like we like we appreciate full lips and and big brown eyes or, or whatever, whatever it is that we find aesthetically pleasing in other people, and some of these things are universal and empirical. Not many people will argue that Elizabeth Taylor was beautiful. Not many people argue that Paul Newman was handsome. This, you know, so this... Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is biological. Yeah. Full lips and shiny hair is a symbol of health. Yeah. You know, and even the sexualization of women, you know, 18 ish years old 20 like you're at the height of fertility so yeah obviously that's going to be sexy to a lot of people or breasts are (laughs) like it makes sense Mm. if that if if those weren't sexy then we wouldn't propagate the human race yeah so yeah you know there's a lot of biology in there yeah. That people kind of forget about or yeah. discount. It's like it's okay, but it doesn't mean that people need to be subjugated by their own attractiveness, like that other people yeah. can feel like, well, you are sexy, therefore I have to look at you or I have to touch you or yeah. or yeah. whatever people are aware of the boundaries of these things. So I do find it... Um, it itches my brain to work out how we can find a best of all possible worlds where people mm-hmm. are less inclined because I, I, I feel like uh, 
if you want to have some kind of uh, restorative or uh, plastic surgery that is about fixing a problem, fine. But people who feel like they are less than because of their breast size and want to have larger breasts because of just this whole size thing, making them feeling more this or less that. Yeah. I wish we could overcome that only because yeah. all, all surgery is risky. And I think and I think it's happening maybe slowly in our society. We're becoming a lot more body positive mm. towards all bodies mm. and a lot more focused on the entire person instead of just outward looks. Mm. I feel like our society is moving more in that direction. Do you? Yeah, I hope so, because I worry about people not even caring about the decreased sensitivity that they might encounter if they do have an alteration of some kind. So, Yeah. um, Have have you ever heard the phrase um, respectful objectification? uh, I don't think so, but I I think I like the sound of it. (laughs) Because I don't really know how to explain it, but... We talk a lot about how objectification is horrible and I see, you know, the argument with that. But sometimes, I don't know, like... Well, it's different when it's attraction. I think attraction's fine, but objectification where you can't see the person behind the boobs for for the boobs because you're just fixated or whatever on someone's body part. Yeah. Yeah, but I think if you're just sexually attracted but to Sometimes someone, it's like being respectfully objectified can be really hot too. Mm. Like just respectfully objectify me and ravish me, but also care that I'm a person. <laughs> yeah. But then that yeah. in itself might not be objectification. I think it's it's love as well. It can be desire and love can meet in the middle. Like doesn't lust require an element of objectification? lust lust in and of itself is an, is a feeling that you want to have sex it's not necessarily um triggered by only lusting after someone because of the way they look i think it's there's the ver- there's the verb and yeah. there's the right no. objectification is primarily the way somebody looks desire so desire and lust like lust to me anyway when I think of the word lust I think of my body is consumed with wanting to have sex sex it's an internal feeling yeah Yeah. whereas desire is um I am preoccupied with you you Yeah. yeah yeah and when I see you then my then I become aroused but for me lust is something like is triggered can be triggered internally. And desire, you don't need objectification to feel desire, for sure. Like I say, it's sometimes meeting in the middle. I used to have desire for people that I found attractive and mistaken desire with having feelings for them. And then as I've gotten older and my feelings about people generally has changed and uh, my experience has taught me that good looking doesn't necessarily mean a good person <laughs> and all this stuff that you have to go through as a young person to sort of learn what what you do and don't want in a human being that you sexually engage with or get into a relationship with or, or whatever you, ha- you, you form deal breakers about people and their personalities. But 
now, like, if someone's really smart, like, it's it's becoming a bit of a hackneyed thing, this whole sapiosexual thing, but it's I've always known about it since I was, like, in my 30s. Yeah. That um, people who are not necessarily smart about anything in particular, but just something about the way their mind works, whether it's a sense of humour, a particular kind of sense of humour, or whether it's a, a increased perception and awareness about things, something about that in that person drives me absolutely nuts with desire. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it's got nothing to do with the way they look Yeah, at all. Um, it would be cool, like, if you interviewed, I don't know, women in their 70s or 80s about mm-hmm. their sexuality. Yeah. So I think my podcast that I did with you is going to be, it like, I approached you, right, because I wanted, like, a sexuality after mm-hmm. 60 or after 50. Yeah. And then I did, I did another one as well with a lady who went through the same program that I did. And her, I loved, like, I love how that I have both of your guys' interviews because you have really different life experiences, mm. but I think it's just, like, it's something that really needs to be talked about. Mm. Like sexuality, people just think about sexuality as like twenties and thirties. I don't know. It's like <laughs> annoying to me. And what about sex in old folks' homes? Like, I want to hear about that. Like. I've heard that oh, it's crazy. I think it's a floating orgy. I think that's what's going on in old folks. Right. Or like, <laughs> like I want to hear about what, what is your sexuality like when you're 90 or when you're 80? Like what, like we don't talk about that. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. I want to interview people about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's this lady. She's been in a, in a monogamous marriage for like fucking, I don't know, 50, well not, oh yeah, 50 years, like 40 years, a long time. And so she had interesting perspectives on that, but we talked a lot about like menopause and the changes that your body goes through. And I think that's really important conversation. To yeah. Have, so, yeah, I think things like, and that, um, birth trauma, it's like we protect society from the pain and anguish and anxiety and, and confusion. And we, we protect society from these horrible things that women go through that end up all right. Everything comes out in the end. Like, you know, eventually you get through it and you look back on your your baby's early years through rose-coloured glasses. But when you first have a baby, those first days of of this phenomenon, you might have a, a fever with, like, mastitis or anything like that and you're healing from having given birth and you've you had that experience that you didn't realize was going to be so painful all this stuff and you're different and then you get no sleep you get zero sleep it's hard like I hear what you're saying too like you don't want to scare people yeah obvious also not everybody's experience is the same Mm. but also if we talked about it more maybe people I heard somebody say the other day you need to not only have a birth plan you need to have a postpartum plan Mm. So if we talked about the shittiness of it yeah. more, yeah. maybe, and and in the same breath talked about things that can help and support you, maybe yeah. people would yeah. be more inclined to make a postpartum plan, which yeah. wouldn't that help decrease postpartum depression and lack of support and things like that. So 
Yeah. There's definitely a mentality for some people too. It's like I struggled on my own. I did it on my own. I didn't have any help. So I know that I look back at myself and what I went through with so much sympathy now. There was a while there where I had a bit of a hero complex about it, but I look back at it and if I know anybody that's about to have a baby, the only advice, and it's not even advice, I just say no one can tell you what it's going to be like for you. No one's going to, yeah. no one can tell you what to expect. Yeah. No one can tell you. Even if we do tell you, no one can describe it. What, <laughs> what, what it is. You know, there's just so much about it that, that is exclusive to you. But, but I think it's universal that in some way everybody does feel at some stage like they've been hit by a truck. And we, oh, under, yeah. and we, under, <laughs> we underestimate how much tender, loving care every single new mother deserves and the entire village should be rallying around new mothers all the time and dropping hampers of food and offering to help with laundry and anything like that just to let those early early weeks be as pleasant as possible because you're getting no sleep and we all know that sleep deprivation is actually used as a torture device (laughs) in war-torn country and I know that there were times I didn't cope and times when I felt like I could throw my baby against the wall. Fleetingly, it would go through my mind. Yeah. Knowing, not that you would do it, but knowing that you're thinking, I'm not sure how much I can take right now, like that having that breaking point. And I think it's at that moment that you have that thought that you start to come down from it because you realise I'm at that breaking point. I'm going through something now. And this is how I do not understand how single mothers do it. Mm. I don't. Because most of those moments, I could hand my child to my husband Mm. and be like, I can't fucking do this. I need to go sit outside where I can't hear him cry. Yeah. And he has the stamina for maybe a half hour, enough time to give me enough break that I can come back and be like, all right, I can take back over. And then he needs to go take a break. Yeah. And get enough stamina to come back and take over from me for 10 minutes or however long it is. What do you do if you don't have that? Like, how do you not throw your baby against the wall? I don't know. It's crazy. I had, I I was lucky enough that, um, because I didn't have much help, but I didn't want any help either. The first, like, I was really obsessed with looking after the babies and just felt as my, everything was my job to do. Uh, But he let me. (laughs) he was awkward around the babies and stuff so uh but yeah my uh second husband around that happy hour that we all know about in the afternoon four or five (laughs) o'clock when babies become really unsettled and your milk supply is low and all that sort of stuff and they'll they will cry for an hour or two hours or whatever and it was six to seven yeah Yeah. and it, it was really easy for me to just give the baby to him and he was a champion at just talking to the baby, walking, pacing up and down, to- totally dealing with this crying baby. And I was okay with leave- leaving him to it, letting him yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, so that was a big moment for me to be able to, to allow yes. myself to do that. Yeah. I think some women are really adept at delegating and, and understanding that they need to gather people to help them. But, yeah, people who are single and alone and have no friends and and have to deal with it themselves yeah i do not know mm. 
I mean, you got to do what you got to do. You mm. figure it out, I guess. But I feel it's a valid choice to be a single parent. Yeah. Too. Oh, yeah, yeah mm. for sure. Mm. I just admire the heck out of them. Like, I just don't know how they do it. Yeah. They're superheroes. They must be. Absolutely. That's the only sane explanation. <laughs> yes, not all heroes wear capes. Yeah. Uh, well... well absolutely Lovely. delightful and wonderful to talk to you again i feel like we're we're friends and stuff yes. so i would love it if you were to slip me a, a baby photo when when she comes i will arrives. i'll I'd be very to. excited about that and yeah when you're back on deck and you're in the mood to catch up i'll let you get in touch with me but i'll check yeah. in and see how you're doing anyway but yeah we will be in touch for sure yeah and we'll talk about self-esteem stuff because you're like as you you actually work with people as a a coach yep so yeah I want to tap into that and share some of your wisdom with my listeners sounds good (laughs) I would love to all right sending your you you and your family lots of love thank you ditto all right sweetie I'll let you go yeah bye bye no, so that's how that went. It was such a lovely chat. We talked about a lot of stuff. We kept circling around to birth and back to breastfeeding and, and stuff. But ultimately, the way the conversation panned out, especially talking about the difficulties of those first few weeks of motherhood, I'm so glad that we talked about it. It's kind of like you blot it out of your memory. You don't really talk about it. But I think all women should keep it in mind and be there for other women and all people should know about it so that they can be there for young mothers. We kind of just think of the things like baby showers and gender reveals. I don't like gender reveals. All the happy, fluffy, bunny wrapping paper and kittens and all the lovely things and and stuff to do with motherhood. Oh, it's so lovely, so lovely. But it's hard. It's difficult. It's the hardest thing a woman's ever going to be called upon to do. And it's normal and it's natural. It's all of those things. But that doesn't mean it's not difficult and overwhelming. So bear that in mind when you know someone close to you. Cook a few dinners and take them around to them. Stick them in their freezer. Help them out. So that's those two halves of the conversation done and dusted. The next episode of the podcast will be out in a couple of weeks' time where I speak to Patsy Minuti, a.k.a. Hella Cougar. Our conversation went for hours, so I'm not sure how many episodes I'm going to be dividing that into. I like to take a little bit of a break uh, after editing podcasts because it is a big job. And I'm psyching myself up to edit that podcast. Wow. Wow, guys. Wow, wow, wow. The conversation we have, we cover a lot of ground. Obviously, continuing on the Madonna Whore Diaries path, we're particularly concerned with the double standards, the fact that it's perfectly okay for younger women to date older guys. It's kind of expected that women will be younger than men when they partner up. It's the way it's done. But it's a whole other thing when older women date younger men. And of course, we're given names 
because a woman's attractiveness is 100% based on her fuckability and these things have labels like MILF and Cougar and all of that crap. We talk extensively about all that and we also talk about ageing and self-esteem and letting go of stuff and embracing other stuff. And don't forget, as I mentioned last time, I have started a partnership with Nikki Darling, purveyors of sexual health and pleasure products, sex toys. Um, If you click on the link in the show notes, that will take you directly to their website. If you use the code word eloquent, you get 5% off. And don't forget to check on Instagram and YouTube. I go to great effort to road test a fantastic pleasure product called the Satisfier Pro 2. And wow, that's another conversation about nipples. That's a conversation all about nipples. It's a clitoral stimulator, but I got it because I wanted a toy that I could use on my nipples and I haven't found one before now. Well, now... I've got my Satisfier Pro 2 and I'm fucking happy with it, i got to say. I'm not lying. I'm not even... I'm just... Oh, can you hear me? Can you hear it? I am smiling when I think about it. Okay, my lovelies. Lovely to be with you again. And I will talk to you soon. Be kind to yourselves. And sending all of my best possible wishes and my love to all of my sisters in the US and feeling everything you're going through. I'm so fortunate to live in a country where abortion is considered healthcare, at least at this point in time. It's decriminalized, it's fully legal, and it's easily accessible. If I was a religious person, I'd be praying like the Dickens for things to change there for the decision that happened in Texas to be reversed. If I lived there, I'd be marching the streets with you. So much solidarity and love going your way. Okay, that's me for now. Talk to you soon.